Good morning. How many of you are awake? Yep, you, you'd have thought Jesus was born in the Ozarks, wouldn't you? That was, I enjoyed that. I don't know about you. Uh, a couple things. Um, I found a pair of glasses laying on the floor back there, and I don't think they belong there. So if these glasses belong to you and you're willing to say so, I'd be glad to hand them to you. If you're not willing to say so, then I'll put them right here on the floor. Because apparently that's where you wanted them to be anyway. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I'm just really good at that sort of thing. I, just, I can do it without trying. Also, this book on James, written by Brian McKenzie, one of the folks in our church. Brian will be speaking next Sunday, and that'll be, uh, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, it's a study on James. We've been in James all year. They're still available. Um, we're going to put out the order this week. So uh, if you're still interested in getting one of them, it would be an excellent help in, uh, in your study in James to just rethink what you've learned. And uh, they'll be out back there. And so you can uh, feel free to get one of those if you wish. Well, this is the Sunday before Christmas. And traditionally, this is known as Christmas Sunday. So we want to welcome those who are here because it's Christmas Sunday, and we hope that you'll feel welcomed well enough, feel warm enough here while you're here, that, that it'll, you'll have a reason to join us again sometime in the future. We also hope that you'll join us tomorrow evening. I want to reemphasize wh what's happening this week. At tomorrow evening at 6 p.m., we're going to have an evening of Christmas, and uh, tomorrow night will be all about celebrating. You saw that graphic that was up there celebrating the reason for the season and we'll sing traditional and modern secular and sacred songs and uh, stuff that you've heard on the radio I'm sure but stuff that's going to make you feel at home we think and, and uh, get in mood for Christmas and then on Friday evening Christmas Eve at five we'll have an evening of worship together as we tell the Christmas story uh, mingled with music as we do every year there'll be a slight surprise. I don't want to say it's a twist. It's not really a twist, but there's a surprise that we've planned for you, and, and so you may want to show up just to figure out what that is, if nothing else. Christmas is about surprises, but uh, uh, I, I believe you're going to enjoy our time together. Folks normally do when they're with us. Uh, this year, uh, we will reset the chairs a little bit before the Christmas Eve service to, to create a homier feel. We won't be sitting on the floor. I know that some of you were concerned about that. We're, but we will be sitting differently than we are this morning. And we will leave a little space kind of up here in the front if some of you want to bring blankets and pillows to sit on the floor. We, that would be okay too. In any case, we'll make an effort to preserve a sense of family and have it feel a little less like church while we're together. There will be hot chocolate and cookies out there starting at 4 o'clock, so come early and enjoy some family time uh, with the others who will be attending. And just so you know, we hope to have all of that out there cleaned up by 10 minutes to 5 so that we can all be in here at 5 o'clock when things begin. There's something at the beginning that you'll want to see and you won't want to be out there chatting. So uh, uh, just make your way in here and, and be all settled in by 5 o'clock nestled in your chairs with visions of, uh, I don't know, whatever, dancing 
in your head. Does anybody know what a sugar plum is? I've, I've never figured that out myself. So be in here at 5 o'clock uh, so that you can, uh, you can appreciate the beginning and we won't miss that special thing there. All that to say that uh, you'll be glad you made the time to join us tomorrow night and Friday night too as we celebrate and worship together this Christmas season. Since this is Christmas Sunday, it seemed like a good time to have our Christmas Sunday message. And this one is entitled, The Intrigue of the Angels. <laughs> and hearing that, uh, that title, you might think that I'm intrigued with, uh, with, with angels. And, and I'd, I'd have to admit that you'd be partly right. I do find them absolutely fascinating. But uh, there's more to it than that. I do find angels intriguing, and especially at those, time, those times when the world of angels and the world of human beings collide. And that may well be something that's happened more often than you realize down through history. And besides that, this conjunction between the world of angels and the world of human beings has been going on for longer than we may realize as well. In fact, it's been happening since the very beginning of the human race. I say that because in Job chapter 38, God talks to Job and describes to him the days of creation. And God says in that passage that he had backup singers while he was speaking creation. Job 38, 7 says that while God was laying the foundation for the earth, the morning stars were singing together and the angels were shouting for joy. They were his backup singers as he spoke creation into being. So the angels were there. And they were witnesses, front row witnesses to creation. And that means that they would have overheard God in the moments when he created human beings. And they would have known that God created human beings to bear God's image, to be like God, and to represent God to the rest of creation. They, would have, they wouldn't have necessarily known what all of that meant, but they did understand that human beings were unique in creation. Uh, and, and, and they... They, 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 would have had, they would have sensed that special connection that human beings had with God. They would have also known that Lucifer and about a third of the angels had already rebelled and that God had banished them from heaven, those fallen angels, he banished them from heaven, and that the fallen angels had found a new home on earth. So the angels in heaven may have anticipated some type of a conflict between humans and the fallen angels, since humans and fallen angels were occupying the same space. So I find myself wondering if the angels of heaven were surprised when the conflict between Satan and Adam and Eve ended with the defeat of humankind under the oppression of Satan's boot. If they were surprised by the fall of man, then they must have been amazed when they heard God make a promise to those two fallen human beings right there in the garden. You see, they would have known that when Lucifer and the other angels fell, God made no move whatsoever to rescue them or redeem them. But right there in the garden, within minutes, within moments of the fall of humankind, God made a promise that he would send someone to deal with the sin of the human race and restore humans to himself. And they would have noted that the one that God promised to send to deal with that problem of sin would come to be known as the promised one. It's a phrase that was used for generations. The promised one would come. 
The angels would also have heard the conversation that took place between God and Satan there in the garden. They would have clearly heard God tell Satan that when the promised one arrived, Satan would strike his heel, but the promised one would ultimately crush Satan's head. So it would have sounded to them like God had a plan. And in that plan, the promised one, whoever that was, was destined to be wounded by Satan. But in the process of that wounding, the promised one would deal a death blow to Satan. In other words, the angels knew that God had a plan to save and redeem human beings, but the angels could not possibly have sorted out the time it was all going to happen or how all of that was going to go down. All of that would become possible. And it's in that light that the Apostle Peter said something truly curious. Uh, look at what it says there in 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intensely and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things they have not, that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. You, you see what that says? It, it says that the Old Testament prophets who spoke and wrote the scriptures often had no idea what they were talking about when they said what they said about the life and sufferings of the promised one to come. The Old Testament prophets wrote about the promised one and God's amazing plan of salvation. And then being confused about what God had prompted them to write, they would ask God for some more information. They would ask God for an explanation. But all that God would tell them was that they, the things that they had written uh, had, had been things that they had written about things that had not yet happened. And that's why they didn't understand it. But the, the, in time... People of the future, once these things took place, those people that saw these things happen would immediately understand it. They would have it all figured out. So the prophets would write something. And then those same prophets would read what they had written and, and not know when or how the things that they had written about would ever come to pass. But there's more. It wasn't just the prophets who were trying to figure out what the prophecies meant. The angels were also very intrigued. They're at the bottom of the, of the screen. The angels were also very intrigued. And according to Peter, they were longing to look into the things God was going to do. And they were longing to understand the plan that God had already set in motion. Now, I'll admit that I'm intrigued with angels. But I have to say that I'm especially intrigued when angels are intrigued. Because as Paul himself said, we see through a veil that darkens our view. But the angels have a front row seat to everything that God is doing. And so when they find something that God is doing intriguing, that really catches my eye. And here's where we might say, well, what do angels find intriguing and how do we know that? I'm glad you asked, because the idea of the conjunction between the confusion of the prophets and the intrigue of the angels brings us to one of the most noteworthy times when the stories of human beings and angels collided. It happened in Daniel chapter 10. 
Daniel's being held captive along with the people of Judah there in Babylon. And, and, and Daniel had recently recorded a prophecy as we come to chapter 10. Daniel had recently recorded a prophecy that, and had compared it to other prophecies in the scripture. And Daniel had begun to think that the captivity was about to end. But he wasn't sure. So he did what Peter told us about. He searched intently and with the greatest care to see if he was correct in what he was thinking. He searched, but he found no tangible answers. He couldn't find a definite answer, so he decided to pray. He's kind of like us, you know. We, we hold that as a last resort sometimes. I guess we're just going to have to pray about this. But that's what Daniel did. He came to the place where he decided that he would pray. So he went down by the river Chebar and he prayed there. But he didn't just pray. He decided that he would fast as well. And over the course of three full weeks, Daniel fasted and prayed. And at the end of the three weeks, a battle angel in full battle gear suddenly appeared before him and above him there on the edge of the river. We have reason to believe that the angel that appeared to him was actually Gabriel, though we can't be sure. Daniel was so terrified by, the, by this angel in battle gear that he fell to his hands and knees, literally fell on his hands and knees. And it wasn't just that he couldn't speak. Daniel says, I couldn't even breathe. He couldn't catch a breath. So he had no way of interacting with this angel. It terrified him so. He couldn't speak. He couldn't breathe. So the angel reached down and strengthened Daniel and helped him to stand up. And then he told Daniel something quite remarkable. You remember that Daniel had started praying three weeks before, right? But the angel had just then shown up three weeks later. So the angel began his conversation with Daniel by explaining to him what had been happening these past three weeks. Turns out that on the day that Daniel had first started to pray, God dispatched that angel from heaven to earth with an answer to Daniel's questions. So you might have expected that Daniel would have his answer on the same day that he started to pray, the same day that he asked for the information. But Gabriel, if that's who it was, was attacked by a powerful fallen angel and captured. The angel captured Gabriel and held him captive for three weeks, held him prisoner for three weeks. Finally, the archangel Michael showed up, and Gabriel and Michael together battled with the fallen angel, and the fallen angel lost that battle, and Gabriel was then freed to finally make his way to earth to talk with Daniel. So just so we're clear, God sent an angel to carry a message to Dan Daniel, but that angel was detained by a fallen angel who intercepted him and prevented him from reaching earth for three full weeks. You got that? Hold that thought. It'll become more important later. Remember, we're talking about this because Peter told us that the angels were intrigued with God's plan of redemption. His plan for the, the, the coming of the promised one from the Messiah. And, and, and they were trying to figure out what it all meant. And we know that another thing that the angels have found intriguing comes from something that King David wrote in Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you, you can see it there on the screen, to guard you in all your ways. They, the angels, will lift you up in, your hands, in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. God revealed to David that God would command the angels to protect the Messiah to save him from harm. 
And that means that, that when the Messiah was finally living on planet Earth, he wasn't there yet when David wrote, but when he was finally living there on planet Earth, if there ever came a moment when he was in danger, the angels had a right to expect that God would immediately command them to get the Messiah out of whatever danger it was that he was in. So what we have so far is that the prophets were peering through a veil and trying to see what the prophecies about the promised one meant. And the angels were sitting on the front row observing what God was doing, but they were still unable to figure it all out. And that combined confusion continued all the way through the times of the kings and the prophets until Malachi penned the last of the prophecies in about 400 B.C., and then God chose to go silent for 400 years. And angels and human beings waited through those 400 long years of silence for God to keep his promise to send the Messiah. And at the end of those 400 years, the angels would have become aware of something that human beings couldn't have seen. They would have become aware at the end of those 400 years that preparations were being made in heaven for the promised one to make his way to earth. And we can only imagine the surprise, the shock that the angels experienced as it became clear that God the Father was not just going to send the promised one to earth. God the Father intended to become the promised one. Eternal God was about to step into time. And Almighty God would soon strip himself of his glory and place himself as an infant into the arms of a young Jewish woman. The Almighty would humble himself to the point where he was unable to lift his own head. And then the moment finally came when heaven and earth and angels and humans collided once again as God turned to the angel Gabriel and told him to go to Nazareth and tell a young woman there in Nazareth, a young woman named Mary, that she would have a child even though she had never been with a man. And when her child was born, she was to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins in keeping with the promise that had been made way back in Genesis chapter 3. So here was another piece of the puzzle of redemption, another piece for the angels to ponder. In a matter of months, Jesus would be born. And we know that Mary pondered the details of his birth and the angels were longing to look into every part of God's plan for saving humankind. But all that they knew at that moment was that Jesus would be born and Mary knew that she would nurture him and care for him and the angels knew that God would command them to make sure to keep him safe from any danger he might face. But at that moment, in the months before his birth, the Messiah was already in danger of being thought of as an illegitimate child if he were to be born to an unmarried woman. So God sent an angel, to Mary's fiancé, Joseph, to instruct him to marry her now. And that's what Joseph did, though he didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus had been born. In time, nine months had passed, and the angels rode shotgun as Joseph and Mary made their way 90 miles from Nazareth to the south down, down to Bethlehem, where it had been prophesied that the Messiah would be born. And on the night of his birth, Heaven and the world of angels and people collided once again as God sent thousands of the heavenly host to a pasture 
near Bethlehem. And since we can't have a message here at the Potter's House without a story from God's word, I'll tell you what happened in that pasture that night near Bethlehem. So with that background, this is the story from God's word. There were shepherds living in the fields nearby the stable where Jesus had been born, the fields that surrounded that little town of Bethlehem, and they were keeping, their wa keeping watch over their flocks at night. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were absolutely terrified. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will be for all the people. It will cause great joy for everyone. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough for animals. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom all, his, all those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said one to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened that the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And, and all who heard it were amazed at everything that the shepherds had seen and experienced. But Mary sat there in the stable that night and treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned to their flocks out in the fields. And they were praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard and that things had been just exactly as the angel had described. And that's the story from God's Word. A week ago Friday, I had the privilege of speaking at Lake Christian Academy. There, were, uh, there was a large group there that ranged from 4 years old to 78 years old, quite literally. I mean, the place was full, and, and uh, there's there just a whole bunch of people there from 4 to 78 I told them the story that I just told you. I told it as accurately as I could. And, and then I asked them to imagine what it, have been, what it would have been like to have been there that night. How the, the, the crickets would have been sounding quietly. And the sheep were bedded down and, and they were inside this, this little, uh, this little fold, sheepfold that, that the shepherds had made either out of rocks or out of bri you know, briars and... and, and uh, and there would have been two of the shepherds that were just kind of sleeping there in the door to the sheep. And, and the, the others would have, been, would have been wandering around as quietly as they could for fear that some lion or some bear or some wolf would pad up on silent feet and make their way, make their way in and steal one of the sheep. It's quiet, the crickets, the, the cicadia, the peepers, and the shepherds walking quietly. And suddenly, the yeah, they're... There it is. That's what happened. You should have seen the four-year-olds trying not to pee their pants at that moment. I mean, it was just, you were startled. But the shepherds were terrified. They were terrified by this being that appeared, uh, uh, looking like a lightning bolt that was dressed 
in clothes and then began to speak to them. And of course, the first thing that the angel said, you remember the first thing that came out of the angel's mouth? Don't be afraid. I just think that it's, it's amusing that every time an angel meets a person, the person ends up terrified. And the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. <laughs> As if. But the point I'm trying to make is that the Messiah has been born. And despite the fact that angels are terrifying, God sent angels to tell the shepherds about what had happened in that little town of Bethlehem. Jesus had been born, and we don't know much about the childhood of Jesus, but we do know that an angel warned the wise men not to tell Herod where the baby was. We know that an angel told Joseph to take the baby Jesus down into Egypt because Herod was going to try to kill him. We know, also know that an angel told Joseph when Herod was dead and when it was safe to go back to Nazareth with Jesus. We also know that Jesus never skinned his knee, broke his arm, or stubbed his toe because God had commanded the angels to keep Jesus safe so that he wouldn't so much as strike his foot against a stone. And then in the grand scheme and scope of God's plan, before you knew it, 30 years had passed and Jesus had stepped into public ministry. And during the next three years, there were some tight moments when Jesus was in real danger, either from the, the Romans or from the Sanhedrin, but he always managed to slip away and escape the danger. And frankly, we don't know how often the angels were involved in that escape, but they had been commanded to keep him safe. And then at the end of those three years, in the week before the Passover, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as the, as the crowd shouted, Hosanna, and proclaimed him to be their Messiah, their Lord, and God in human form. And the angels had to be intrigued as God's plan appeared to be working perfectly. But then the tide of public opinion turned against him. And once again, as the angels watched in horror, the Messiah was arrested and put on trial in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. The angels must have been waiting for God the Father to give the command to them to, to go and rescue him. But the throne was once again silent. And then in a matter of hours, Jesus was standing before the Roman governor who gave the order to have Jesus flogged. And as that Roman centurion began beating and whipping Jesus nearly to death, the angels watched with broken hearts and utter confusion as they waited for the Father to speak the word that would send them to planet Earth to rescue him. But no order came from the throne. Ah, but then there came that moment when Jesus, broken and bleeding, stood once again before the governor, refusing to answer his questions. You remember that part of the story? And the governor took exception to Jesus' silence and asked Jesus if Jesus perhaps didn't know who he was. Don't you know who I am? He said to Jesus. I am the governor, and I'm, because I'm the governor, I have the power either to sentence you to death or set you free. And that's when Jesus spoke up and said, you have no power over me at all except that which was given to you from heaven itself. Because even now I could ask my father and he would immediately send more than 12 legions of angels to set me free. I'm confident that a cheer erupted in heaven among the angels at that moment as they turned to the throne and said over and over, say the word, say the word. 
Say the word, and we'll go and put a stop to this outrage. Say the word, and we'll set him free and bring him back home. But still the father refused to give the command. The Roman governor gave orders to have the Messiah crucified. And soon Jesus was lying down on an old rugged cross as his hands and feet were nailed to that wood. And the soldier stood the cross up in place and stepped back to watch him die. Jesus took a breath and was about to speak his first words from the cross. And I wonder if the angels were hoping that he would ask the Father to send them to deliver him. But Jesus made no such request. And the angels were amazed as he said of the people that had nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Six hours later, he shouted, It is finished. And within a few moments, he had breathed his last and was dead. And I don't think we can begin to imagine the vast, empty silence in heaven. And the light of the world, the light that had shined in the darkness, was extinguished and buried in a tomb. And what conclusions did the angels reach when they pondered the events that had defined the last week of Jesus' life? Was this the plan? Or had it just spun horribly out of control? A day passed and then another began. And, and then Jesus, on that third day, in the darkness of that tomb, took a breath and stirred and left the tomb behind. And that was when the father turned to the angel of the Lord. He's known as the angel of the Lord. That's all he's called. He turned to the angel of the Lord and told him to go to the tomb and open it so that people could see that the Messiah was no longer there. Now remember how Gabriel had been prevented from reaching Daniel for three weeks the fallen angels had, had done all that they could to keep Gabriel to, from getting to Daniel because they didn't want him to get the news about the captivity ending. And now Satan had been unable to keep Jesus in the tomb. But think about this with me. Satan couldn't keep Jesus in the tomb, but wouldn't it be the next best thing if he could just keep the tomb from being opened so that everyone would see that he was gone? If he could just keep the angel of the Lord from moving the stone. If Satan could have kept that stone in place, that would mean that Jesus had indeed risen. But if the stone was not removed, then no one would have known that he was gone. Now, as far as Satan was concerned, that stone had to remain covering the entrance to the tomb at all costs. And that's why I have often told you that I don't believe for a minute that the angel of the Lord floated down from heaven and stood on the tomb. I believe that he rocketed from heaven like a lightning bolt and struck the top of that tomb like a thermonuclear missile. I believe that with all my heart. And besides that, we know that on the morning of the resurrection, there was a massive earthquake. Do you remember that detail of the story? And we know that the earthquake didn't move the stone because the Scripture doesn't say that there was a massive earthquake that moved the stone. The Scripture says there was a massive earthquake because the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, tossed it aside like a pebble, and sat on it. I believe that the earthquake, that earthquake, that morning, the resurrection morning, 
is the most tangible evidence of angelic warfare we have in God's word. The fallen angels led by Satan did everything that they could to keep that stone in place, but the angels of heaven tore through their ranks. And the angel of the Lord lifted that huge stone and tossed it aside. And that battle in the heavenlies was so intense that it literally shook the earth itself. And when the Roman guards fainted, <laughs> the angels turned to the women and said, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't, <laughs> oh my goodness. I can imagine the look he was given to the Roman guards that made them tremble and then finally pass out. What look was on his face when he turned to those women and said, don't be afraid. Because I know, I know that you've come here looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, but he is risen, just as he said he would. And now we've reached the point where the work of redemption and salvation is finished. But there's still one very large problem. Jesus is alive, and the empty tomb proves that, but no one other than those women know that the tomb is empty. So the angel told the women that there was more to God's plan and that Jesus had planned already to meet with them and discuss those things with his followers in Galilee in just a few days. The greatest story that's ever been told is just unfolded on planet Earth, and now the moment has come to get the message out to everyone. Now, in retrospect, we now know how God planned to get that done, how God planned to get the word out about Jesus. And, uh, but at this point in the story, Jesus hasn't yet announced it to his followers. So knowing that the angels are, are longing to understand God's plan of salvation, we can assume, I think, that at this part of the story, they have certain expectations of how God's going to spread the word about what Jesus has done. I say that because God had already established a pattern for news regarding the Messiah. Think about it. When God wanted to get word to Mary about the upcoming birth of the Messiah, how did he get that done? He sent an angel with the message. When God warned him to get word to, to Joseph that he should take Mary as his wife, how did God get that done? He sent an angel to Joseph. When God wanted to get word to the shepherds that the Messiah had been born there in Bethlehem that night, how did he get that done? He sent an angel. When God wanted to get word to Joseph that he should escape from Egypt with the baby Jesus because King Herod was going to try to kill him, how did he get that done? He sent an angel with the message. There are other examples that we could cite, but given all of this, what do you suppose were the expectations of the angels now that they knew that Jesus had died and risen to save those who believe the message. What do you suppose they were thinking would happen? When God had important news about the Messiah, he sent an angel to carry that news to the people on earth. And now the most important news of all has surfaced. People can be saved from death by trusting Jesus in his finished work. It only makes sense to me to think that the angels would have assumed that it would be their job to carry this vitally important news about Jesus around the planet. Jesus had returned to heaven by this time, and there would have been a celebration to welcome him home, a celebration that would have made every other celebration seem trivial by comparison. But then there came that moment when Jesus left heaven again 
to meet his followers in Galilee. The angels would have watched him with genuine interest as the events of Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 unfolded, where Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Look at verse 9. A cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. What do you suppose that means? I, I mean, do you suppose Jesus was hiding behind a cloud? I, that, I don't think that's how that went down. I, I think it's more likely that his followers watched him until he rose above the clouds. He was obscured from their vision, and then he continued his journey uh, until he re-entered heaven. And I've often tried to imagine how the angels reacted at that moment. They certainly would have welcomed him home, but remember, they were looking into the events of what made our salvation possible. And they were trying to figure out what each bit of the story meant and how the plan was going to unfold. At that point in the story, they would have known that the work of salvation was completed and all that remained was for someone to pass along the good news to all the people on planet Earth. And it's, it's at this point in the story, while Jesus is back in heaven, and the angels, they, they would have been able to see right down there, uh, right down there, they were standing, a, a group of men and women, and moments before, Jesus had been standing down there with them, and he had told them what to do. He had told them to go and make disciples of all nations. He had told him to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit was given. And when the Spirit was given, he would give them power, and then they were to go to the ends of the earth as his witnesses. That's what he had explained to them. So the angels know that Jesus told those people to go, but the angels can see that group of people just standing there, staring at the sky with their mouths open. That's what they were doing. Jesus is gone. He's been hidden from their sight, and they're still. You suppose the angels remembered the Garden of Eden where God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit, and they disobeyed God? And now that those people down there who have been told by God to go, well, they're just standing there. Would they disobey God's command? like the first people disobeyed God's command? Would they mess up God's purpose for the good news, like Adam and Eve messed up God's purpose for creation? Now remember, the angels long to look into all this stuff and sort out what it means. So I can't help but wonder, and I've shared this with you before, I can't help but wonder if perhaps Gabriel, it might have been Gabriel, would have turned to Jesus and, and said to him, when do we go? to carry this good news to all people. To which Jesus would have said, you won't be going. Well, then the angel might have said, if we're not going, what's your plan, Lord? And when Jesus pointed to that group of people standing down there on that mountain, he would have said to the angel, they are my plan for getting the good news out to all people. And I can imagine the angel looking back down at that, that ragtag group of people who were still standing there with their mouths open, 
And maybe the angel then turned to Jesus and said, so Lord, uh, <clears throat> what's your plan B? To which Jesus would have replied, there is no plan B. It's entirely up to them to get this good news out to all people. And that might have been enough for Gabriel to say, so do you, you want I, want I should get down there and tell them to, to, to kind of get going? I mean, they're just standing there. Look at them. You want me to get down there? And, 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 and in the past, when we've come to this point, I've made the mistake of telling you that Jesus probably did tell the angel uh, to, to find a buddy and then go tell the people to get going. But I have to tell you that I was wrong to say that. Jesus didn't tell two angels to go tell the people down there to get going. The real truth is that Jesus would have said, no, Gabriel, the responsibility for spreading this good news will never fall to an angel. And then Gabriel would have seen Jesus turn to two men already there in the heavenlies and tell those two men to go and tell the Jesus followers to go and do what Jesus had told them to go and do. And how do we know that? Well, because of what it says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. It's a light and gentle reminder. In other words, don't just stand there with your mouths open. What is wrong with you bozos? Go and do what he told you to go and do. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. And when the Spirit gives you power, go and be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that is God being true to His stated purpose in creating people. Because He intended that people would bear His image. He intended that people would be like Him. And He intended that people would represent Him to the rest of creation. So what does all this mean? Well, we've been, we've been talking about the fact that Peter told us that angels long to look into what it, it took to save and redeem the fallen human race. And the point that Peter was making was that the angels are watching us. I hope you caught that. The angels are watching us to see how this whole thing of the good news about salvation actually works. And we know that angels would have gladly carried the good news of the finished work of Christ to the ends of the earth. Uh, would it have taken them several hours? I don't know, but they would, they would have gladly done it. But we also know that God's plan was that people would carry the good news to people who live everywhere, including the people who live at the very ends of the earth. And I have to say this morning that it seems to me that the angels learn something about God's plan that the church doesn't seem to have caught on to yet. And that is quite simply, there is no plan B. There is no plan B when it comes to the good news. We alone have the privilege of sharing the good news with other people. And if we don't share the good news with other people, there is no plan B. 
We've taken some time this morning to look into some things that the angels long to look into, to, to look into some things that angels find intriguing and in closing. And there are a couple things that I want to say about what we've discovered. The bad news this morning is that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And because of that, according to God's word, we're destined to be punished because of our sin and we're destined to die for our sin. And that's the bad news. The good news is that we trust the finished work of Christ. If we believe that Jesus was punished in our place, if we believe that Jesus died for us and rose again, God will give us life and forgiveness because of what Jesus did for us. So if you've never believed that good news, this Christmas Sunday would be a great Sunday to set that in place. It'd be a perfect time to enter into a relationship with Jesus by faith and become his follower the rest of your life. But if you have believed the good news that Jesus has died for you, if you have made the decision to follow Jesus, then please understand this morning that when it comes to hearing to other people hearing the good news, there is no plan B. You have family members and relatives, co-workers, classmates and friends who will never hear the good news about Jesus if you don't tell them because there is no plan B. Hey, the angels are intrigued. They're still intrigued. They're learning things about the power of the good news by watching us. So I say, as Christmas Day rolls around this year and, uh, and this year again comes to an end and turns into another year, why don't we make an agreement together that we're going to show the angels something about the power of the good news in our lives that will leave them absolutely amazed and intrigued. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, thank you today for the privilege that we have of knowing the good news. Thank you that, that you took on human form. You were born as a, a baby that was unable to lift its own head and, and, and you grew to be a man and, and you, you lived a perfect life and then you died in our place and, and then you rose from the dead. God, that's a simple message, but it is the most powerful story that's ever been told. I ask God that you would help us to grab hold of that, to carry that message from this day forward in ways that we've never carried it before. Help us to realize that there is no plan B for the guy that fixes our, our car. There is no plan B for the person that, that, that cleans our house. There is no plan B for anyone other than the plan that we would go and be your witnesses. So empower us for that, we pray, God. Send us out for that purpose. And Father, we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know that... Uh, if you, if you tend here that we always end the same way and we're going to do the same thing this Christmas Sunday morning, we will not do this on Christmas Eve. So when it's over, you're just going to have to get up and go out without me, without me, okay? If you're new here, uh, we started this, what was it, 2015 or something like that when we studied the book of Acts. We've huddled up. We've discussed a play. We're going to take the good news out there because we know there's only plan A. There's no plan B. So we're going to start telling people the good news. And as your coach, if that's what I am, 
All that remains is for me to say, ready? Ready. Go get him, Potter's house.